the future of SMART, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. I'm really excited to launch Season 2. For those of you just joining us, the Future of Smart podcast has been designed as an opportunity for us to think about the challenges that we've been attempting to address in education over the last couple of decades in new ways. We brought new frameworks and new voices into the conversation of what's possible, and we tried to tie all of that to the work of education funders and the communities that they're serving. In the first season, we trace the popular idea about what it means to be smart or capable, what a good education looks like, including the very idea of school, back through two main factors, a very particular set of historical events and priorities, and underexplored aspects of the human brain. We heard about how certain ideas become assumptions, how certain tendencies of our brain came to be seen as superior and have eventually come to filter our reality. How our ideas about what school is and what learning is have, for centuries, been dictated by priorities that we're no longer invested in, and how those assumptions and those brain tendencies have shaped our whole society, and how changing the future of SMART can change the future of the world. We heard from leaders in the field of education and education funding who are working to build more human-centered schools, experiences, and ecosystems. Season 2 is going to pick up where Season 1 left off moving from an exploration of what human-centered education is into a deeper look at the structural barriers and possible solutions to the challenge of making it the dominant experience of education in this country. We'll hear from folks working in schools, districts, and nonprofits to build structures and systems that center the values that we explored in Season 1, and we'll be hearing from funders who are examining their own practices to try and empower these actors in new ways. Our inaugural episode of Season 2 brings the voice of Grantmakers for Education's new Executive Director, Dr. Nicole Rodriguez-Leach, who joined on July 1st and brings a wealth of experiences from being a classroom educator and advocate to being an education funder and longtime member of the Grantmakers for Education Network. We're excited to welcome her and her insights into the work of the organization and into shaping the conversations we're having with members and other leaders in the field of education and beyond. Welcome, Nicole. We're really glad to have you here today. I'm so excited to be here with you. I want to start, um, you know, where I usually start since we know that kind of who we are and the work we do in the world is so deeply shaped by our own lived experiences and where we come from. So I'd love it if you could tell us a bit about your personal story and maybe specifically as it relates to the work that you've gone on to do um, in service of young people. Yeah, and there's lots of history <laughs> to go back on. So, you know, I'll offer, I think, a few pieces of my story that I I believe are particularly salient as I think about how I've approached 
my service to young people and their families and communities over time. I was born into a family of activists and community organizers and an extended family of educators and artists and other types of community leaders, union organizers, and um, kind of neighborhood tenant association leaders and things like that. And so I was really in my kind of, I always joke, like in my DNA has been these influences really concerned with well-being of community, whether that community is your household, your family, your school, your colleagues and peers at your job, your neighborhood, your building, right? Um, And I was uh, literally born into this, right? Mm. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm from New York. um, And for those of us who hail from New York, there's a particular kind, I think, of cultural pride um, that, you know, others have in other places, but it's a particular type of cultural pride that I think um, rings very core to who I am in many ways. So I, I claim New York as my home, right? But I was actually born in Philadelphia, and uh, raised a few of my young years in Alaska before I moved back to uh, Brooklyn, which is actually where my family was from. And so, you know, I had this entry in the world that was like really a kind of formed core of me. And then I had this kind of geographic range. Mm -hmm. And so my communities look different in these different places. But as a young person myself, I was always very curious, very social, um, and very creative. My after-school program was a dance studio, right? When I was four, my mom was like, I got to put her in something. (laughs) And that was a ballet class. Um, But I grew up dancing Hmm. and danced to, through, and after college, um, and still do. And so I think some of that kind of creative spark and that creative and artistic energy and enthusiasm is very much a part of who I am Hmm. outside of a dance studio as much as it is inside. And so I think for me, when I think about um, myself as a young person, myself as a young learner in particular, I was very inspired by the adults around me. I was really fortunate to have... Um, teachers that left a mark on me from as young as first grade, I recall, um, and certainly through my school years. And so for me, it really shaped how I approach, how I think about young people, even as a young person myself, but certainly as I started my career, I very much think about the whole person, you know, what they present in front of me, but then also all the background and then the pieces they don't present in front of me, right? I yeah. could, I, not everyone knew I was a dancer necessarily, right? Yeah. But by having conversations or tapping into certain types of teaching and learning approaches, you really get to learn young people differently. Um, and I started my career in service to young people in the classroom. So that's how I really... Um, kind of think about that work. And it's really been able to be transferable to me in schools in community organizations Hmm. in my own grant making and how I approach that as really integrated and whole Hmm. and even in my management. 
So just to kind of pause and go into it. So what did you teach? And I'm curious, you know, you talked about the kinds of learning experiences. So how would you have described what it was you were trying to create for young people when you first entered the classroom as an educator? So I taught uh, first in a program called Summer Bridge. It's now actually called Breakthrough. And I taught in their Philadelphia site. And so I was actually a college student teaching middle schoolers at that time in a summer enrichment program. The motto of that program being students teaching students. Mm. And, you know, we were, I think, guided by some mentor teachers to really think creatively. I was tasked with teaching an English class uh, to a bunch of seventh and eighth graders, you know, (laughs) Um, which is always fun. I actually have a really special place for middle schoolers. Um, And that was really my first kind of entree into the world of teaching. And then once I graduated, I taught at Germantown Friends School. I taught writing. I taught uh, our social studies class at the time. And then I also taught um, what would be like a current events course. Mm -hmm. So always in the kind of language arts and humanities. And when I moved back to New York after that, same. I taught upper elementary years. English writing. What three very different kind of experiences, right? And I think um, (laughs) folks who are listening, the out of school time space, but the idea of near peers and what it is that we do and how we do it when we're not limited by the the idea of a classroom in schools. And then a friend's community, I mean, the Quaker approach to education about this kind of deeply spiritual, whole human being kind of element of it. Absolutely. And it's about for so many, in so many spaces, I think about that we're catering to all the places where children and young people learn. So that is in a classroom in their, you know, K-12 during the day and in their after-school hours, be that at home, in after-school settings, um, but also in other kinds of social institutions that they're part of. Hmm. And for me, I always saw our job as my job, right, was to... um, you know, create a little bit of magic for them to provide them skills and all of those important things, right? Um, And help them unearth new knowledge, but also create openings and sparks. And that energy, I think, is really very much a part of how I think about our work even now. So I love starting there. And then I'm (laughs) curious, as you went on into some of your other professional experiences, I'm curious of the ones you would sort of name as particularly formative and how um, you can share how those experiences inform how you think about the range of work that Grantmakers for Education members um, are engaged in. So for sure, for me, my um, experience at Summer Bridge was pretty formative. I was a young person myself teaching um, young people. And it was, um, I think, a very important and creative crash course in what it is to create an educational experience for other people. And so as a young person, you reflect on what experiences you've had for yourself. And I think that process has been really important for me, especially then. I often come back to the fact that I, I mean, I, I had some amazing teachers Not always, Mm. right? And I had some that I really struggled with, but I had some teachers that really um, designed their classes so that we felt we were going on a journey, sometimes a very Mm. challenging one, but one that was worthwhile. And that was seeded for me when I was at Summer Bridge or now Breakthrough. 
I went on to direct the program that I taught in. And after that, I moved back to New York. Um, and I that's when I entered the world of out-of-school time. It wasn't called that then. We called it after-school education, right? Um, yeah. But we, I worked at an organization called East Harlem Tutorial Program. Mm -hmm. And I ran the education programs and services for our elementary um, school students. And I managed our volunteer program. And I used to host site visits for funders, mm -hmm. including one of our someone from one of our member organizations oh, that's great. <laughs> at, at funders. Yes. That's great. Um, but, you know, I, I love that place because it felt like family. Mm. It, there were hundreds of us that would be thousands of us that would go through that building every week. Right. Mm. Um, but it really felt like family. And I felt like to have a place where you learn with family was really special. And it meant a lot for me as a growing professional. Mm. There though, I also had a student third grader, I will always remember this young boy um, who did not know how to read at third grade. And at the time, New York City had a social promotion policy. And so mm -hmm. students were just getting really kind of pushed along. And he, I was introduced to him and told him, I was told about him that he had behavioral issues. And when I came to learn that, that he did not know how to read, that he was not literate, things started to come together for me. Right. And we had a, a special um, bond. He loved to sit at my desk. He loved to feel like he was a boss right, in that <laughs> program. Um, but it was really endearing. And I think it really showed me that one piece of our learning experience affects another piece of our lives, potentially. Mm. Um and that all of these things are interconnected because we walk around as whole people. And so do children, even though sometimes adults forget this. So for me, that was really important. You know, you fast forward a couple of decades, a couple of degrees and certificates, and I'm in the higher education classroom mm -hmm. more recently um, as a professor in a public affairs school. And it is... Um, really, really wonderful to see young people who are college-aged really grappling, especially now, with what they're hearing, learning, seeing, witnessing, experiencing in their lives, but in the classroom. So I taught a course on nonprofit theory, history, and management, and then another course on civic engagement and public participation. Mm. And what what an amazing opportunity, right? To really hear young people engage with texts, old and new, and really place themselves in the learning, in the context of our world right now as they experience it. Mm -hmm. For me, this is really formative. And so I think about these experiences as a teacher, you know, what that's meant for me even as a learner, I did my advanced degrees as an adult right? mm -hmm. with lots of years of experience working behind me um, as a researcher, right, with my research experience that focuses on education policy and management. And for me, I keep coming back to how important it was then for my grant making to also be as integrated, right? Mm -hmm. So as a program officer, you know, I was the one who like loved to go on site visits because you get to see folks in their element, right? In their contexts so that you can understand the whole. Mm -hmm. When I was, 
you know, at a point in my career when I was designing grants strategy and grants program, for me, what I always referred to as this braiding of applied research programs and services and policy advocacy in my grant making was critical because we are whole people. Communities are whole communities, right? Mm -hmm. Schools are whole schools. No matter what is happening in those places, there are so many webs that are woven in these spaces. And so for me, it's really important that grant making is contextualized in that way, particularly with education, because what happens in the school day is influenced by and influences what happens in other parts of the day for a young person. So your um, your connection with Ed Funders, I know, is long and deep. Um, so I'm curious, along this journey that you've just mentioned, like when did you first join the network? And how has your time as a member of the community informed your own growth as an education grant maker? So I love this. <laughs> I so and I actually had to look this up because I I traced back by thinking about um, where all the conferences were that I had attended. So I joined Ed Funders in 2012. I worked for an organization that was a member at the time, uh, an, a foundation. Um, my first conference was the conference that was in Brooklyn, New York. Oh wow, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, absolutely. And so you know. 10-ish years later, (laughs) right? Yeah. Ed Funders has actually been really pivotal to my own professional development and growth. For me, in the foundations that I was a part of, I started in each of those places as the only person doing education grant making. Hmm. And so the Ed Funders community, along with some regional associations and some donor collaboratives that I was part of, were my network. They were the folks I went to. It wasn't necessarily someone at my foundation, mm-hmm. right? It was these peers that I had grown to be connected with that I went to. If I was trying to imagine a new RFP or I needed to talk to someone about a particular topic or issue and wasn't quite sure where to go, these were the folks that I kind of called up. And it's been, um, I mean, an amazing journey. I always love that I could curate the conferences to the experience that I really needed uh, and wanted. And that was really wonderful for me growing up, I think, in the part of my career and the funding side of the grant. Um, And then I joined the board. And that was another opportunity for me to give back to an organization from which I gained so much personally and professionally in a way that I thought was... um, meaningful and worth my time, frankly. Mm -hmm. It's a big commitment. Um, And that would allow me to continue to contribute back. Almost in a very similar kind of stance as um, the teachers that I had, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like when you have an experience with a mentor, be it a teacher or someone else in a nonprofit organization or your foundation, you start to carry with you this obligation to mm. um, to reciprocate in yeah. some way. And so my engagement with Ed Funders over this last decade in these various roles, right? Member, participant, board member, conference chair, session organizer, et cetera, Um, has been really pivotal for me, both as something where I can grow 
my own self professionally, but also contribute and offer some reciprocity as well. Um, I'm I, before we sort of dig in a little bit to yeah. you and your new role. I'm just I'm loving, and I don't think we could have planned this if we had tried. But you know, <laughs> in the things that you are talking about, right? I'm hearing relationship, the idea of how do we get to know a thing, an organization, a person, an experience from all these different kind of facets and pers- and perspectives, the integrated kind of contextualized nature of it, and that's mm-hmm. so much of what. You know, this podcast has been about as we grapple and think about education and what we want for young people, how do we like pull these ideas into this kind of united way of thinking about it as opposed to the pieces and parts mm-hmm. that I think sometimes our our dominant culture has a tendency to ask us to do. Um, and so if, as you step into the executive director role, right, it's a it's an interesting moment. Um, you know, funders, philanthropy as a sector has been grappling with really challenging questions that relate to money and power and privilege and the role of philanthropy in a capitalist society where tax structures and other decisions we make allow for the accumulation of wealth. I'm curious how you've been thinking um, you know, about some of these issues and how you see it informing your vision for this role and for education funders as an organization or grant makers for education as we move into this next era um, of our existence as a member network. Yeah. So I really appreciate this question and know that we could talk for a very long time, right, (laughs) about it. You know, when I, um, there are a few things that come to mind for me, right? I think about Edgar Villanueva's work Mm -hmm. around decolonizing wealth. And he, uh, I remember reading his book thinking um, how profound his conversation about really healing and how we need to kind of get right in our relationship with money. And some of us have to do that personally, right? Mm-hmm. And then some of us also have to do that in our work worlds as well, maybe on our own behalfs or on our organization's behalfs. And for me, his work at that time was really prompting me to think about this at an individual level, right? Mm-hmm. How do you resolve some of these tensions and contradictions for yourself? For me, as a woman of color working in philanthropy, it was initially pretty difficult because I had to negotiate some philosophical issues that I had, right, about how grant decisions were made, about the kinds of programs we funded when I was a student in those programs growing up, for example. And so I think this, um, you know, considering our personal position as it relates to power and privilege and wealth and extraction um, of of wealth and other resource is an important exercise for us all to take on. And I do think that as I step into this role, I'd love to um, work with our members and the field more broadly to continue grappling with these questions. And there's some individual exercise that happens there. Mm. I think there's some organizational exercise, right, that happens there. And Ed Funders is no different from other nonprofit organizations that should, including foundations and others, that should absolutely be holding the mirror up to itself as we think about the historical context that brought us to how we show up in the world at this time and how we would like to show up in the world as we continue 
to understand what's happening around us and take some positions around that. I also think about, um, I was introduced to a scholar named Tyrone Freeman um, who wrote a book recently about Madam C.J. Walker and her giving philosophy, a gospel of giving of sorts, Mm -hmm. right? So we have Carnegie's, you know, gospel Mm -hmm. of wealth. We have Darren Walker's blog post um, some years ago on a kind of a new gospel of giving. And, And Dr. Freeman talks about Madam C.J. Walker's giving and her approach. And I think what that helps me think about is that philanthropy has looks like different things, mm. right? And it didn't necessarily start with one person, right? Yeah. That there's a long history to how we think of charity and giving in our world, in the U.S. context, and across the globe. Mm-hmm. In some places, that looks like mutual aid, right? In other places, it looks like a more paternalistic form of giving, Um, And lots of things in between. And so I think it's really important for us as a sector to expand our understanding of our history of of giving in education, but even more broadly, so that we're better positioned to be inspired, I think, to how we continue to give um, and partner with community and partner with policymakers and partner with researchers and our colleagues across our various networks. And that's what I'm hoping to, you know, bring to this new role as we grapple with all the very many pressures on education sites and systems right now. Hmm. You know, you use the word healing before. (laughs) And as I've been listening to you, and you can tell me if this resonates or not, but I am hearing you be very careful and thoughtful about the verbiage and the language that you use. And I raise it because, um, you know, I live in Denver and this week has been full of a lot of rhetorical positioning and language and conversations where it sometimes feels like the need to call out prevents us from sort of having conversations that leave room to invite people in. And I'm curious if if you just have any reflections on sort of your approach to that as a leader, because these are issues that hit people very deeply, very personally at an emotional level. And, you know, I think uh, as a member organization, we have folks who are sitting in a wide range of places. And just any reflections you have about the feel and the tenor and the tone of the conversations that you would like to have us all be a part of? So part of it's probably the English teacher and me. Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do think our words are important. We live in, a, I think, a U.S. society right now, at least to offer that context, that um, where many people use many words and sometimes we're not exactly sure you know, what other people mean when they use the same word we might use to describe something completely different. There's not a lot of um, common vocabulary. And so I'm very attentive mm-hmm. to my language, um, in part for that reason. I want to be clear. And in order to be clear, I need to explain because I know that a particular word or phrase may mean something different to someone else. I do also think that 
there is a grounding that we necessarily need to have in order to do some form of movement work, which we're all involved in, right? Even education grant makers and our organizations, whether that's our own dollars that we're giving away or some other entities uh, or individuals' dollars, I think um, suffer or have the potential to suffer from whiplash because education is so highly politicized, right? Mm -hmm. We see this now more than ever, but we've seen it before. And so there has to be and frankly, I think we have an opportunity as grant makers to be grounded and to expect that in the way that we have our conversations with others outside of our industry, right? Outside of our sector and even within. Now, do I think there's room for dialogue, debate, disagreement? Of course. I do think that there's some times where um, a crispness of language, right? that is um, not only necessary, but in service to moving the work forward more than kind of a gentle approach, mm -hmm. right? Or mm -hmm. a measured approach. I also think that we have this opportunity to consider what the role is of education philanthropy in engendering deliberation, right? So I think about John Dewey's work a lot about deliberative democracy. What does it mean? And I used to teach students about this and we used to engage together in dialogue about what does it mean to have deliberation instead of just discussion, right? Mm -hmm. Not uh, in the way that, like, that we think about it from a public administration perspective, right? The way public systems are administered and who gets to engage in the design and implementation and monitoring of them, right? We need people to share information so that there's not this information asymmetry that occurs. We need folks to explain their positions and we need room for the debate and the dialogue and the disagreement. That is necessarily a part of deliberation. And I do believe that education philanthropy has a way, a particular role to play in fostering that type of deliberative democracy. For me, even using that term deliberative is really important, right? We don't have all the answers. We don't know everything. Um, we don't necessarily always have the right to tell our grantees what to do, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but we do have the position to engage with others in a deliberative process. We also have the privilege of being able to attach dollars to that. Yes, which is uh, which is something we may come back to, but we yes. hear that a lot, right, <laughs> from a lot of folks that the kind of change and the kind of things that we say we want don't happen in a year. They don't happen mm -hmm. even in two or three. And so what does it mean when we say we want del deliberation and to kind of go deep um, into meaningful mm -hmm. dialogue? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I want to turn to our strategic plans. So for you know listeners who may not know, in 2021, the team at Grantmakers for Education dove really deep into 
our, the organization, how we could serve members, the particular context of the world post the murder of George Floyd and, and COVID. And we have a vision, a mission, some strategic objectives, and then a strategic plan you know, around those. And uh, folks can go to our website and we'll drop a link into it. But as you think about and you looked at the strategic plan coming on board, I'm curious, what are you most excited about when you think about the next few years as we head into our 35th year as an organization? Um, what are you most excited about in terms of the strategic plan? Right. So the strategic plan is very ambitious. And that is probably what I love about it the most. It centers, it names, and it really anchors itself in an education philanthropy that is just and fair in the sense that it explicitly takes on the dynamics of race and racism, whiteness and white supremacy as experiences and constructs and systems that affect our education experience, our, in, our education institutions and organizations and the experiences of learners from early education, right? Mm -hmm. From childcare and early ed through pro-secondary and beyond. For me, I was very excited to read the strategic plan because the step of naming a North Star around an education philanthropy that is anti-racist and just is huge. What that means and what that looks like in implementation is a challenge, of course, especially for a member organization. We're modeling and we're also hoping to work and mold with the field mm -hmm. toward that North Star. What the strategic plan, as many often do, though, is also attach indicators, right, and matrices of these goals and objectives that come from this particular strategy. And these are important, right? They're not perfect. But so often, what serves as a barrier to organizations be they foundations or otherwise, schools or otherwise, right, to taking on this work earnestly is that we don't know what it looks like and we don't know what it is until we, how to measure it, right? Yep. Yep. And so part of what the strategic plan that does, and I think some other processes that have been more internal is really articulates some of those indicators and measurements. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have this kind of philosophical and overarching goal of an education philanthropy that is anti-racist and just. And we have tactical approaches that I think we're building out and seeing through at EdFunders, which includes our members and other field leaders, but also includes internally our board and our staff. Hmm. This to me is part of why it's so ambitious. It's multidimensional, it's very layered, and I think it offers a process that leaves space for our members, whether they're just starting this work or they have been you know, doing this work for many, many years. 
this to me is very, very exciting. That's great. Um, so I want to just go back and, and dig a little bit more into members and education grant making mm-hmm. right now. You named um, the role of philanthropists in enabling deliberation as part mm-hmm. of deliberative democracy, especially in this moment in education. What are some other unique opportunities you see for education funders and grant makers at this moment? When grant makers are asked what the unique position is, right, of philanthropy, usually we talk about our convening power. Most people will talk to us most times, Mm -hmm. is how I like to think about it. And there is truth in that, right? We're able to convene our grantees, we convene ourselves, right, Um, in many ways. I do think that's still a unique space for philanthropy in general, um, that other sectors don't always have the resources or the commitment to. But I think for education philanthropy in particular, especially given the um, discussions around education that we're having across states and across the globe, I think we're uniquely positioned to bring together conversations that are happening in different places. Even as a local funder, you have an opportunity to bring folks together that are in your locality or your state and others. And that I feel like did happen robustly at one time Mm -hmm. and then started to become more and more narrow. And now that frankly education is at stake, we see the display of education being at stake kind of on the world stage, on the front page in in many senses. I do think that there's at this particular moment a position where education philanthropy can think of its convening power a little bit differently, more broadly. I also think it has this opportunity for us to think about the role of education as it intersects with other areas of our social, cultural, economic, and political worlds. Because we can see examples of this in cities across the country where education and housing are really connected to each other, where education and voter participation are really connected to each other, right? Obviously, education and health are really connected to each other. I think it's both our obligation, but also an opportunity for us to live at these intersections, even if our own funding is, you know, particularly focused. There is a space, I think, for education philanthropy to start considering those intersections. And I do think there's an opportunity to do that now. I wanted to ask two clarifying questions. When you Mm -hmm. say education is at stake, can you just unpack that a little bit? There's a few examples that we, Mm -hmm. we could use, right? Where the nature of teaching and learning is either looking to be dismantled as we know it now, or where there are shifts that people are trying to undertake, right? We see this with community organizers all the time, right? They are literally organizing and advancing for some shift that they see. I think this we're familiar with. Some foundations even fund this type of policy advocacy and community organizing and education work. We're also now seeing it from um, 
political leaders, elected and appointed officials, in ways that I don't know that we've really seen in recent years. And so now you have more political actors, more policy mm. actors, more practical actors, right? These are not just policy decisions. These are even about some programs than we did before. Mm. And I think it's really important that the nature of our schools and teaching and learning and schooling as an institution, education as an institution, that we consider what is at stake, mm. right? For every one of us, that might be something different. It might mean something different. Sometimes change is welcome, sometimes it's not, right? Our own positions and our foundation's positions might be different on issues. But what is to be expected is change or a desire for change from some constituency. Now I think we just have more constituencies involved in those conversations around education. Yeah. So what does that mean then for us to consider what's at stake, right? Now we have to actually consider the concerns and agendas and perspectives of a broader group of people and, and groups of people, groups of stakeholders um, that are very vocal, mm-hmm. right? From the community organizing entity to the political entity and everything in between. Mm-hmm. That is what changes. And, and I do think that how we understand, you know, the public promise of education in a multiracial democracy, our understanding of that is changing for some. Our understanding of that is for others very clear and the fight is to preserve it, right? For others, it might be, we had this understanding, but it doesn't make sense anymore now. How do we reinvigorate this deliberation around what this public promise is, particularly in a multiracial democracy, which is whether people like it or not what we aspire, right? What many mm-hmm. want and aspire to have. And to something you said earlier, right? How much more important it is for us to be able to to sort of pull back from maybe the immediate space we're in and be able to see and understand a range of dialogues, perspectives, what is happening. And then in the moments, whenever it is that it happens, that we start to coalesce maybe in different places around what we want to build. How do we come together to do that? Mm-hmm. Because it's beyond the scope of one individual funder or one individual program. And so what are the opportunities? And I know for us as a member organization, that's a big part of it. What are the opportunities to bring people together, both for the convening and the conversations and the deliberations, and then hopefully also to kind of do things together that allow us to to build impact or to kind of demonstrate and bring impact alive in the world? Absolutely. And to think about that um, kind of collective learning, right? And that collective um, will, even with our varied program areas within education, right? Even with our, even maybe varied kind of political positions individually, right? And even with the di- different types of partnerships that we all, all of our member organizations have, that within our network, there is an openness, a willingness, a desire to engage across all of these actors. And then to bring in folks too that we don't typically engage with mm-hmm. um, to inform those very generative conversations. 
That leads to a question I've been wondering about. So as a member organization, I think we grapple with the tension between being a member-only space for funders, right, given the unique positionality and the unique kind of challenges that that entail, where funders can learn together in affinity space um, with other funders. And yet there's also an increasing call for funders to connect with, to be proximate with, to share power with non-funders. Um, did you feel that tension when you were an education grant maker? And how are you thinking about it as the new ED, especially when it comes to the kind of opportunities that we as an organization want to provide to members? I did feel that tension as a grant maker in my organization. I didn't feel it when I was at a conference, for example, or where I was, you know, joining one in a series of conversations on a particular topic. Um, but in my organization, I felt it. Part of that is my own positionality, right? As I mentioned, I grew up in the programs that I funded. In some cases, exactly the program I funded was a program I attended as a young person. And so having a different position and relationship, because now you're in this new position, I think begs some of that tension. You know, for me personally, I just had to figure out how I negotiate that. And, mm -hmm. and that's not a unique experience to me. But I do think that um, we have an opportunity at, at funders to have a both and perspective, right? There, this is a space for our members to have conversations where we don't necessarily have to have as the primary context, the position. Because we know we can name the position, right, that we have as funders and, and work through it and complicate it. But we, we already know what that is, right? There is an appropriate space for that that we at Ed Funders can provide and should provide. And if those are the only conversations that we're having, then we suffer or there's the potential to suffer from kind of that vacuum experience. In many ways, without getting close, right, getting proximate to those our grants serve or to those who are represented in the data that the research we read talks about and analyzes, right? Or to those who are directly affected by policies that we in some way engage with, then without engaging all of these other spaces in our conversations and all of these other stakeholders in our conversations, we absolutely suffer from the vacuum, right? But I think more specifically, we, we have the potential to suffer from what organizational historians call presentism, right? Mm -hmm. Where you think that what is happening now is just what's happening now. You don't realize the cumulative effects of everything that's happened before, right? The, are the legacies that we're seeing play out now. This is at risk you have the potential to suffer from this presentism when you're really only talking to yourself right? or others that are, you know, really in the kind of the same space as you. Yeah. I think that for me is risk enough that affects the kind of work grant makers do and the kind of impact grants, education grants have that it's worth us 
both creating the space for our members where we know members are not going to be solicited. I did not love that as a Mm -hmm. member, right? In this particular conference space, for example. Um, And to also bring in others so that we can get close and mm-hmm. we can learn differently and about their those perspectives in a way that we may not understand or be aware. Mm-hmm. And then explicitly ask, what does this mean for our grant making? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. What does this mean even for our own internal organizational systems? What does this mean for our network? Yeah. I do think we can have the both and. In this respect, there is a tension, but I think we can embrace that tension and really be clear about why some conversations are just with amongst members and why some conversations are necessarily broader to include folks that are not our members. Yeah. And in people's organizations also to ask, why are some conversations just among your program, you know, grant staff? And why are some conversations necessarily with others through a community advisory board or a research advisory board or any other mechanism that foundations have established. If we ask those questions, again, the deliberation, right? If we're deliberate and thoughtful about those types of questions, I think it raises for us um, and, and shines a light on our own practice, our craft, you know, our grant craft in a way. Um, But then I think it also helps us better understand the schools and the school actors and the school decisions and the other places of learning and those actors and those decisions that are being made, how they're made, who they affect. There's space Mm -hmm. for for both, I think. Yeah. Well, and just to tie a couple two ideas that you kind of named before. I think if you think about this as a movement, right, which almost by definition is a dynamic kind of moving, growing, changing entity inside of a movement, there is a space and a need actually for people who are playing in lots of different pieces, which is where that both and with kind of idea actually is really mm-hmm. important because I think it actually gives you more room to be deliver- deliberative about what your role is if you know that others are doing other things and you can sort of understand how what you're doing fits into the bigger mm-hmm. picture and puzzle Absolutely. Um, of it. So. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned conference, and that's where I'd love to to kind of end. Um, we are in the middle of, of planning for this year's conference, and you have come and jumped right in, which is amazing. So I'm curious the things you're excited about and what you want to highlight um, for folks who already know they're attending, or maybe folks who don't yet know that they're attending, but really are going to want to at the end of your answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for me, you know, Ed Funder's conference, annual conference has been the thing I mark on my calendar every year uh, as a grant maker. This year, I think, is very exciting for a few reasons. One, uh, and I, I will probably say this every year, right? The city that we're in for the conference is incredible. Atlanta is incredible. There's so much deep history and culture um, and and present day conundrums right, <laughs> happening in this city um, and in the state that I think make it really ripe for the kinds of conversations we want to have and that the kinds of questions um, and issues we're grappling with. So very broadly, you know, Atlanta, I think for me, is a particular highlight. 
I will say that about every city because every yeah. city offers such incredible highlight, though, I think. Um, I am very excited that our pre-conference day is at Morehouse and that we have this opportunity to really think m together about not just the role of higher ed institutions, but also to think more specifically about the role of HBCUs in our current context. Now, in order to think about it in our current context on the heels of the Supreme Court ruling, on the heels of other types of um, legislation and initiatives that we're seeing across states that directly affect higher education institutions, um, and that also directly affect black and brown students and other students of color. I think being at an HBCU and being connected to the others um, is really important for us and exciting for us mm -hmm. to be in conversation with and kind of foreground at this time, at this particular moment. I'm always as excited for the learning sessions hands down, because that's the space where you can really curate your experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have the learning sessions, we have the um, some of the deep dives, we have some of the networking sessions. I think the kind of meat of the conference ends up being this curated space where you have a lot of guidance if you're not sure what you what you want to focus on, um, if at all. But you also do have this opportunity, again, to, to really tailor for yourself as an attendee. I think that's really exciting. And the plenaries. I mean, the plenaries are opportunities for us to, um, to network with each other in a different way, right? You think of plenary, you think you're sitting and you're listening, but there's always ideas that are sparked in those plenaries. Sometimes they come out on that stage. Other times they just come out when you're talking to the person next to you or you go to the next session and, and you bring back an idea. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really excited about what gets sparked by what's going to be involved in these plenary sessions. That's great. So come to Atlanta. Let's really, I think, dig into um, the role of higher ed institutions, even if we only fund after school programs, right? Even if I am an OST funder, the reality is that we can connect the dots and trace how your OST work mm -hmm. is both influenced by and influences what is happening in higher education institutions, in admissions and otherwise. Yep. Right. Let's make all of those connections across the pre-K to 16 and beyond kind of education spectrum. This is an opportunity, I think, to really do that together. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And if you'll allow me, I just I want to name, too, that you had talked early on, right, about the need for us to also have the space at the individual level mm -hmm. to kind of grapple with our relationship with the work. And so I'm also, you know, as we're at the Historically Black College and University of, of Morehouse, um, there's going to be some beautiful spaces, I think, through a couple of the writing workshops, the racial autobiography workshops, the Grant Making 101, that's kind of a, a justice-oriented look um, at philanthropy to – 
to kind of dig in um, on a personal level for folks who want to do that. So, yes. um, well, Nicole, we are so excited to have you on board. We're excited to convene all of us together at Morehouse and at the Atlanta Hilton and really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you and just kind of learn a little bit more about your story and, and what you see ahead um, for the work and for all of us together. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Really wonderful to have this conversation and really looking forward to continuing conversations into the conference and beyond with our members and, and with others. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Future Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. <laughs>